Welcome to this BTOG podcast. My name is Tom Newsom Davis. I'm a medical oncologist at Chelsea and Westminster Hospital in London. I'm also the vice chair of the BTOG steering committee. And I'm Leanne Castle, a respiratory physician at Barts Hospital in London. This is part of our regular podcast series where we have informal chats with experts in their field and tackle the most important issues that we all face in the diagnosis and treatment of thoracic cancers. It is important to say that the sponsors of BTOG do not have any role whatsoever in the planning, content or delivery of anything discussed in these podcasts. We would love to hear your questions and comments on things we've discussed in this podcast. Please contact us uh, by emailing us at uh, info at btog.org or tweet us at btog.org. Hi Zoe, it's great to have you here with us today and very timely as I understand it's coming up to uh, four years of service for the uh, rehab service in Manchester and nearly 2,000 patients recruited. Uh, yeah, yeah, in terms of lung, yeah, absolutely. Brilliant, so um, Zoe's with us today and she is the AHP clinical lead for Prehab for Cancer, which is based in Manchester, and she's a specialist OT with extensive experience in neurological and physical rehab. Um, Zoe is also a member of the National Macmillan uh, AHP expert group and has helped produce universal prehab resources in partnership with CRUK. So we're very grateful for her to spending her some time with us today, answering all our questions about rehab. Okay, so uh, we'll just kind of dive straight in with the first question. Um, so I think most of our listeners are members of the MDT and they're aware of the role uh, that prehab uh, plays in, uh, in the treatment of our patients. But could you talk us through the different aspects that are involved in a prehab programme? Because it's not just all about uh, increasing exercise tolerance, is it? Absolutely. So, um, yeah, so so prehabilitation is a range of modalities. Um, the top three that certainly most prehab services would cover is exercise, as you've mentioned, Leanne, um, and um, nutrition and then well-being. So that kind of psychological side of things. Um, however, there are other aspects to think about. So, for example, smoking cessation, um, alcohol um, and other substance misuse, um, even things like anemia management. So any type of optimization of a patient as they're going through a, a treatment pathway um, where we know that by doing certain interventions, you're going to really optimize their ability to engage in their treatment and to get the best outcomes from their treatment. Within the prehab for cancer service, which obviously um, is what I am involved in in Manchester, um, our main three modalities are exercise, nutrition and well-being. So those are the three modalities we're particularly focused on, but we are very much closely working with other colleagues in terms of some of the other aspects I mentioned. Thanks very much. And how do you decide who's eligible for treatment? Because you have a huge number of patients coming to our MDTs. How are you picking people out? So Prehab for Cancer is quite unique because it's a system-wide delivery. So it's um, we offer it for all patients who live in Greater Manchester, which is a really large area. We've got um, you know, roughly 2.4 million people who live in this area. Um, and we're very lucky because um, the service that we provide, um, we offer it across the whole of Greater Manchester. So um, how we've um, been able to kind of target specific groups is um, we're working with patients who've got either lung, um, esophagogastric or colorectal cancers. And um, within those groups, um, it's mainly focused at the moment on patients who are having surgical treatment. However, specifically in the lung cancer group, um, 
we've been able to do some extra innovation around um, offering service up for patients who are non-surgical patients having other types of treatment, including just recently, um, we offered up our eligibility to include patients who um, are diagnosed at stage three and stage four um, being offered any kind of active treatment. Um, and once somebody's kind of met the eligibility criteria in terms of where they live and in terms of um, the type of cancer they've got and what type of treatment they're having, um, then we've worked very closely with a lot of the clinical teams, a lot of the MDTs across DM, um, so Greater Manchester, um, to really talk about which patients would be eligible. And actually, in fact, the majority of patients are eligible. Um, so really, you know, about 90% of the patients coming through would be eligible. Um, the, the kind of cutoffs that we put in place is um, you need to, it's an adult, so it's anyone aged over 18, but we've got people in their 80s, their 90s, so there's not really a, you know, um, anybody really over the age of 18. But then also we, we look at performance um, status and we look at the clinical frailty score. Um, so people who have got um, essentially performance status of two or, or better um, can be um, engaging in the service or people who um, five or above on the clinical frailty scale as well. And other particular eligibilities in terms of you have to be symptomatic or are we saying anyone in whom you are planning a radical treatment who has a lung cancer in greater manchester should have prehab if someone's yeah. ps0 asymptomatic are they still theoretically going to benefit from your your tender yeah. administrations yeah so how we've done it is essentially anyone diagnosed with the types of cancers that i described so lung um, obviously which is why we're talking today but in og and colorectal as well um Prehab cancer is, is part of their pathway. So it's the same as really being offered treatment. It's embedded within the clinical pathways. Um, and what we do is we stratify people once they've been referred into the service. So we, there's an online form that people fill out because obviously we've got 10 different um, hospitals who are referring into the service. And then the patients are contacted within a couple of days. They get assessed at their local leisure centre, their local gym. Um, and depending on what the assessment is, basically is about what they're going to get then. So if you've got the person you just described, Tom, mm -hmm. um, who's doing really well, um, you know, maybe it's somebody who exercises already or somebody yeah. who's younger, um, then that person's probably going to be given what's called a universal um, programme where they'll be getting on with things themselves. They'll have some touch points, some contact with our team and they'll be doing some assessments um, but really they get given a program which they, you know, they, they have free access to the leisure centers and the gyms locally to where they live. So they still get that side of things. Um, yeah. And we've got lots of resources online and we've got um, classes they can dip in and out of, but they don't need as much supervised um, intervention as people who um, their functional status is, is, is less than that. So in but fact, in, in, your, in your network, you're saying everyone, all curative patients, who are being considered for curative treatment because they're PS zero to two should be should be referred to you. I mean that that's a huge difference to what's happening in my neck of the woods where yeah. no one's referred unless yeah. you think they're not actually going to be able to get to treatment. I don't know if it's difficult different in your neck of the woods, Leanne, but we we don't do that at all. Um, so, yeah. so we're we're keen on referring uh, kind of more of our patients. Although I would probably say that. I think because of the pressure on the service, maybe the kind of PS zero, uh, it's more, we, we probably don't sort of worry about it so much, but otherwise anyone else would kind of is pushed through. Um, but um, I was quite intrigued by what you were saying about using the leisure centres, which is obviously a, a great idea. So yeah. um, the, I mean, I'm sure everyone's got a leisure centre reasonably close to them. And, but when they go to the leisure centre, 
um, they're actually they're actually being seen by the leisure centre staff to kind of assess their exercise capacity rather than kind of NHS based staff. Yeah. Um, so, so, so the, the so the staffing model we have is um, basically in great. I mean, we've what I will say is we're very lucky in Greater Manchester. So um, we've got what's called GM Active, which is um, all the leisure providers in GM have come together under one banner, and we've worked through them throughout the whole of the kind of um, design and delivery of this. It's very much a collaboration, um, and all the staff involved are all cancer rehab qualified. So they've all done extra training. A lot of them have worked on pulmonary rehab. A lot of them have worked in um, falls prevention, cardiac rehab. Um, and so they've all got um, quite high level of qualifications. And then we actually have a core prehab cancer team. So that team, so it's commissioned by the NHS. It's an NHS team essentially, um, but they're all exercise specialists who work in that team. Um, they've got myself, um, my, I'm an OT by background, so I'm the AHP clinical lead. And then we've got um, John Moore, who's our, um, he's our medical clinical lead. He's an anaesthetist by background. And what we do is we do quite a lot of upskilling with them. And we do a lot of um, continued professional development sessions. Um, we, we did, um, I don't know if you're aware of the stepped care model, which is a psychology model about um, how much um, support patients might need from a psychology perspective. Um, and all of the people who work in the programme have all done level one on that, which is about being able to provide some level of well-being support to patients. So we've done a lot of training with those um, staff members. And yeah, we've got 90 leisure centres where we can deliver this in. Um, the assessment clinics are in um, basically there's one or two leisure centres in each locality where we do it. But once a person's been through that assessment and we know what they need then they can essentially access the program in the leisure center that's two minutes from where they live um, and that's a big part of the success for us because partly we just knew that if we asked people to come to the hospitals for to do the prehab that that would be a barrier but the other thing is is that um, this isn't just about um, optimizing someone for treatment this is about lifetime behavior change as well and we do as well as having the prehab phase um, we have continued um, interventions if somebody's having non-surgical treatments, so doing their kind of radiotherapy, chemotherapy, immunotherapy. But then afterwards, everyone gets 12 weeks of rehab when they're back at the leisure centres in the gyms, um, depending again on their needs, back working with our team. Um, and then we're very much thinking about how we kind of try and promote that independent, confident exercise um, once somebody's um, been discharged from the service and actually we've done a lot of follow-ups of patients who've been through the service previously and we find that people are still exercising um, and still doing incredibly well. Um, are there any, you know, any contraindications to this? Are there any people who really can't, I mean obviously someone doesn't want to come, they don't have to, but are there any physiological, clinical, social factors which would lead you to say do you know what this isn't for you? Um, so the only thing that would be really a contraindication is about any potential sa um, safety issues or harm that would befall somebody engaging in the community prehab and rehab service. So, for example, if somebody's got specific cardiac issues, yeah. if we've got people with aneurysms. So there you're um, going to be sending them up towards yeah. a cardiologist before yeah. they head to yeah. the centre. Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. And, and things like, you know, bone mets, if somebody's got the risk of um, spinal cord compression. Um, you know, we work very closely with all the MDTs and all the allied health professionals and nurses across Greater Manchester. So um, the, the very kind of top tier of patients that can't access service, which is a very small percentage, um, it would be thinking, well, what else could they access or what else support could they get? Um, but it, you'd be surprised the majority of the patients who are referred through to us, we are able to work with. Um, and we have um, the ability to work with people remotely and in person as well. So.
Okay, so so you kind of have uh, these kind of hub leisure centres where people can be first seen, and then they and then they can be seen at the smaller leisure centres. But also there is the ability for them to do like virtual online sessions yes. as well. Okay, yeah. that's really interesting, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, yeah. we did. That was a COVID, that was a COVID um, forced on us by COVID, really. Yeah. Um, but actually, it's been really helpful, um, especially for patients who might be shielding in advance for surgery, or who might be a little bit reticent about um, being in community spaces. Um, you know, when they're going through specific treatments. So that's it's helpful that we can continue to do those interventions with people. Yeah, I think the um, the kind of interaction with the community via the leisure centres is, is is really quite innovative and it's also really quite um, helpful for the patients too, isn't it? Now, um, once they're like in the programme uh, and they're, they're doing their rehab, how do you reassess them to, you know, see if, if the rehab's helping or if it's working, yeah? So we... Um, we assess people at four time points through their um, pathway. So baseline when they're first referred, which is normally within a week of when they've had their cancer diagnosis. Um, then we assess them again pre-treatment. Now, obviously, if somebody's um, going on to kind of immunotherapy, chemotherapy or radiotherapy, um, then we try to do another assessment kind of in the middle of treatment. But for surgery, it's really obvious, you know, we've got the baseline and then the pre-surgery assessment. We then reassess somebody after they've had their treatment, so after they've had their surgery. Um, and actually, there's a big focus for us on patients who are having adjuvant treatments um, and about how we really engage them. Um, and then we do our final assessment at discharge. So we're able to really track people and see um, what improvements they're making. And what we're finding is that from a functional perspective and a physiological perspective, people really do hugely improve during that prehab phase um, just before they start their treatment. Um, and again, the improvements that we see when somebody's discharged from the service from their baseline are often quite big as well, um, which is part of the reason why we've been able to get recurrent funding and, and been able to keep the service going for you know, the last four years. And do you use like a standardised measure to assess that, like their six minute walk distance or like kind of the yeah. reps they can do maybe or yeah. 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 So we, we did used to use the incremental shuttle walk test for lung because obviously that's um, kind of mostly recognised for lung. But because um, the six minute walks um, used universally um, to try and make our data much cleaner, we use the six minute walk test for all the patients. Yeah. We use a six minutes, um, sorry, six minute walk and then we use the sit to stand um, in terms of strength. Um, and we also do grip strength as well. Um, we do a whole plethora of quality of life and functional assessments. So we do things like the um, EQ5D, the EORTC, QL, QCL30, the WHODAS. So all these different outcome measures that are more about people's functional ability and about their quality of life and their well-being. Um, and then we also um, we do the um, self-efficacy scale for exercise because we understand that part of that assessment is how confident somebody is to actually engage and how activated they are um and understanding again going back to that behavior change aspect so do you, do you think I mean, with, with those long lists of quality of life questionnaires i mean that you guys are the absolute experts you have huge proficiency is there going to be a problem trying to roll out this model outside of manchester if we're expecting so much data to be collected or are you doing those eq5d etc more from a research point of view to prove the system works so it's a mixture of two if i'm honest um partly we had so many outcome measures when we first started because we were a transformational program and we needed to really demonstrate the value of what we were doing um but there really is a lot in the um the interventional side of doing those assessments because it really does help patients to understand 
where they're up to in terms of um, you know what's happening for them just going through some of those questions can be really light bulb moments for patients in terms of what their needs are um, and, and where they might be doing really well or where they might need um, you know further signposting etc certainly in terms of quality of life um, and for example we with the nutrition side of things we do what's called the PGSGA which is um, a nutritional screen and when we first started what we realized was that most patients don't have any kind of nutritional screen if they do it might be a day or two before their surgery as part of their pre-op and obviously you've got a very small amount of time then to do any kind of intervention or any improvement in terms of someone nutritionally so what we found is that by just introducing that nutritional screen and we've got a rag system of being able to flag patients back to the clinical teams if they are shown to be nutritionally compromised in any way we've been able to massively improve people's nutritional status without actually really doing much more intervention within the program. So we do give advice around nutrition, um, but for example, we haven't been able to give supplements or anything yet. That's something that we're working on. But what our data shows that even just doing the screen and then flagging that back to the clinical team with three or four weeks to go before somebody's treatment, it's enough time then to actually really make a difference in someone's, someone nutritionally. So, so yeah, so, so the screening tools, I know they seem arduous, um, it, we've been going now for quite a while so we've got it down they, they're very quick we can send them out on email people can do them online um or depending on what needs people have or they do it with the um prehab for cancer instructors um and it's it, you know it's an hour session essentially the assessment clinic and it helps the prehab for cancer instructors really provide personalized care because they get to really understand the patient understand what's happening for them and the program they prescribe for patients is very personalized for individuals so which again i think is part of the success of the program and people who are listening might think, you know, oh, this is very labour intensive, you know, what's the point in doing all of this? Um, but there is evidence, isn't there, that, that this type of prehab improves patients outcome, patient outcomes. Yeah. Yeah, so absolutely. So there's there's evidence in the literature and the research. Um, certainly there's been systematic reviews. Um, within lung which absolutely shows and um, there's evidence but anecdotally within our service and within we had an independent service evaluation completed by a commissioning support unit um, after a few years and the outcomes were phenomenal um, we've shown huge um, reduction in healthcare resource use we've shown improvement in survival at one year we've shown um, improved physiological outcomes um, you know people um, less time in hospital less time um, in critical care beds you know so in yeah, terms post, of so shorter post-operative stays and yeah, uh, yeah, a, yeah. A, absolutely so so in terms of because what, what we're talking about really is about recovery essentially about how we're trying to improve somebody's recovery um, and our independent evaluation which is available um, for anybody who wants to have a look at it it really does demonstrate um, the value I think we've shown that the service the return on investment is about three or four times over what it costs to pay for the service and so in terms of that, I appreciate it might seem quite um laborsome but we really do think it makes a huge difference well we don't think it we know it because we see it with the, the I was going to say we've had over 3,000 patients now accessing the service so um yes we really do have a lot of data and anecdotal qualitative data to support um what we're doing as well so there's lots of things changing uh in lung cancer pathway and uh rather good timing that we've just found out that new adjuvant chemoimmunotherapy has just been approved by NICE. Um, it's going to, I think, fundamentally change the pathway for lots and lots of patients who've currently, we are doing surgery and then we're giving adjuvant chemo to, I think a lot of these guys are going to get new adjuvant treatments. 
is, is that a challenge? Is that an opportunity for you? Because you're not going to have that treatment free period because people like me are going to be throwing chemo immuno around. How are you going to adjust your excellent uh, scheme? Are, are people on chemo immuno going to be going to the leisure center still for their, for their prehab? So as I've described before, um, we are, we've been working with patients who are having those types of um, treatments for the last few years anyway, um, and they've been done really well um, engaging the service. Um, as a comparison, our OG pathway, because they offer neoadjuvant chemotherapy, um, we've from the day one from April 2019, we've had OG patients who've had a similar pathway to what might be happening within lung going forwards. Um, and although um, the feasibility is something that we're very aware of, you know, understanding the ability for people to engage when they're going through that kind of treatment. Um, we have made it work and we have found that we're still making improvements in people's functional status, their physiological status, um, even after they've been through their neuroadjuvant period and they're coming up to their surgery, we're still seeing that we've improved their physiological status from where we did their baseline prior to them having their chemotherapy or immunotherapy, which is phenomenal really. If you think about what you know that kind of treatment does to a person um, to actually be able to maintain and, and improve somebody physiologically, um, I think it's really testament to why it's really important to continue doing prehab despite um, having that um, challenge. Um, so yeah, so it's, it's a fantastic opportunity. I think the key thing really is the feasibility bit and it's about understanding that you really have to monitor patients very carefully. You've got to really supervise people who are doing any kind of interventions and it's the logistics of how you fit it around someone's treatments. And But then again, having remote offers, having the ability to get people onto virtual classes, all of that really, really helps um, to kind of navigate those challenges that might come up. And on, on, a, on a similar theme, and you, and you touched on this at the beginning, um, presumably if you can do it for neoadjuvant patients, you can do it for patients with stage four disease. I mean, why, you know, that those are the patients who perhaps need rehabilitation, prehabilitation more than anyone else. And it yeah. sounds like that there's no particular barrier from your point of view, but there, I guess it may be in terms of resources, because can you really do this for everyone or did you have the resources to do it for everyone? Because those are, those are big numbers. So we've recently um, had extra funding awarded to us to, um, to, to again, innovation to, to work with stage three and four cancer patients, lung patients who are having any kind of active treatments. Um, so now in Greater Manchester, if you're a lung cancer patient and you are being offered active treatment, you will be able to be referred into prehab. Um, we are mindful that there is certain considerations that's different to our other cohorts. So for example, we've got increased um, psychological support for the staff who are delivering the service, bearing in mind that we're working with a group of people that have got a completely different prognosis to the ones who are coming in um, under the curative pathways. Um, and also we've got increased dietetic input because again, we think that nutrition is gonna be really, really important for this group. Um, but yeah, absolutely. The, the, the kind of the focus is a little bit different. It's not necessarily, you know, thinking about, um, you know, we are trying to extend people's life and we are trying to certainly improve somebody's quality of life, which is really the whole aim of the service. Um, so the focus is slightly different, but um, we, we're very excited about the work we're doing with those stage three, four um, patients who are coming. And will, will that stage four work, is that kind of in, a, in alliance uh, with your palliative care teams or is it actually very separate to that? Is this a separate cohort? Um, it's in alliance with the palliative care teams. Okay. So we've got um, all the CNSs um, 
across DM. We've done a lot of work with them. We've done a webinar for them on this new group of patients we're working with. Um, and we've got a lot of them involved in the kind of design and delivery of this. Um, and then also the kind of um, palliative care teams within the communities. What we're very conscious about is that um, people will be deteriorating potentially quite quickly. Um, and obviously um, one of the the things that happens with our team is that we might be seeing a patient two or three times a week where they might not be seen by their clinical team just because of the nature of the way the NHS works, maybe for, you know, not as frequently. So we've done a lot of work in terms of our protocols about red flags and what to observe, when to get back in touch with the kind of clinical teams and the named referrer um, and being able to have that really good communication so that if patients are deteriorating, um, we know at what point somebody is not necessarily going to still be able to benefit from engaging in the service. It's a very extensive service that you're running. Um, I guess Thank you. just to take, yeah, take like a little step back. There's there's always some patients that we, we can't engage with. And do you, I, I think I think in your colleague's tweet, he was talking about kind of up to 80 percent engagement. But in that kind of 20 percent or so that um, that you can't get a hold of um is there do you feel that there's any particular reason why those people don't want to engage have you identified anything that, you know that we maybe can think about in clinic and target yeah so some of some of it's really silly so some of it's things like we've not got a good mobile number for somebody or we've not got the right contact details which you know that's just classic in the nhs isn't it um some of it's about um understanding and education of patients so i think what we've really focused on and we've had a lot of engagement from all the clinical teams is um in fact we've spent a lot of time talking to patients when before we even started we had a patient focus group of about 25 people and we said how how are we going to make this work how you know what what would you need to do to convince you to do this um and as an OT, it makes me want to cry a little bit. But what they said was, if the oncologist tells us to do it or if the surgeon tells us to do it, then we'll do it. Um, and so that's the really key thing. I think it's about understanding that this can't be just an added extra over here that somebody gets a leaflet for. It has to be that it's embedded within the pathway. It has to be that the MDT are considering somebody's um, eligibility for prehab. They're having conversations with the patient along the same time. They're having those conversations about cancer diagnosis, about what treatment options they've got. They're really advocating for the patient how important it is and how much of a difference it's going to make. Um, so I think that's that's part of that um, twenty percent of so people we, not engaging. Got they've got to do it as well, have we? So basically, <laughs> yeah. the, the doctors have to tell them, and then also, I guess, also, you know, the CNSs when they're seeing them as well, and just yeah. uh, re reinforcing that. Uh, yeah. uh, I mean, I know it probably goes back a bit to that old classic. I always tell our patients that they won't get their operation if they're still smoking. That the surgeon will be very cross <laughs> and he won't do it. Yeah. So maybe that kind of uh, <laughs> that kind of carrot approach, but. Do you ever identify other things? So I know, uh, so I live in a major city too, where there's very good public transport, but the patients yeah. always hate to travel. They constantly, yeah. even going two miles is too far, yeah. <laughs> uh, which, you know, I'm sure some of our colleagues who work in rural areas must kind of really roll their eyes up. Yeah. Um, are things like that barriers sometimes? Do you find the kind of transport or support? Is it to do with support? So, so our patients so don't want to engage. 
so we we knew that transport would be a potential barrier which is why we've designed the service the way we have in the community and the leisure centers so really no no one would need to ever travel more than 30 minutes to access the service if that normally the service is within a mile of their residential postcode you know it's we've really really um gone to town on making sure that transport wouldn't be an issue i think the other thing that is an issue which i didn't raise previously is just the timing of it all so what we sometimes find is that somebody might get referred and then something changes and they go straight into surgery and we've just missed the opportunity to get them involved. So that's often another reason why somebody might not have been able to engage. And that actually really does account for quite a high proportion of the patients that haven't been able to engage. I mean, I think there's other things. I mean, a, a lot of the work we want to do going forward is, a, is that targeting inequalities and being aware of all the different um, protected groups um, and you know um, ethnic communities, et cetera. Um, I'm just we're just conscious that you know it's how you engage different people from different backgrounds um you know and it's and even just the barrier of walking into a leisure center you know if somebody's never exercised before if they or if the last time they walked into a gym was 20 or 30 years ago it's how you really encourage people um to do that but um to give you just a comparison if you look at things like pulmonary rehab if you look at um other rehab schemes um i think engagement levels are like 50 60 percent so I think we're very happy with our engagement levels. We appreciate we could do better, um, but I think that we're really confident and, and because we've been able to maintain that, even during COVID, we're able to maintain those engagement levels. Um, so I, I think the engagement is really high, um, but I think there's a lot that we could do collectively within an MDT to try and make it even higher. Just, just out of interest, do you, is it all based in, so it was quite interesting you said about maybe some ethnicities or some groups of people are not used to going to the gym and that seems really, you know, just, you know, there's too many young people in Lycra, you know, or, or something Absolutely. like that. Do you, do, you have a, do you have any sessions that are kind of hospital or even community clinic based? So for those kind of, maybe those gym adverse people, because the other incentive is I'm sure lots of people, you know, free classes at the gym, that probably gets them there, but there are those people who probably it's just, if you're maybe in your early eighties, it's a bit of a shocker, yeah. isn't it? Sometimes going somewhere like that. So uh, do you have any uh, clinical based sessions now or is it all in the gym? Yeah. So what, what we have got a little bit of in reach. So we've um, actually started to we've got this the one stop clinic that we're doing um, within our respiratory center. Um, and we have a prehab for cancer exercise specialist based within that um, to try and work with any patients where they might be harder to reach. Um, some of the sessions are done in community centers because it really is about what's available within each locality. Um, one of the nice things working with um, the leisure organizations is that they normally know their communities really well. So if there is any barriers that might come up, they, they normally help us to overcome those. Um, but like I said, um, what we do is once that person's been to an assessment clinic, which most people come along to that, if, if they kind of say at that point, oh, do you know, I really don't want to go to the gym. It's really not for me. Then we, that's when we're saying, well, we can do this remotely. You can do home exercises. We can be on the phone to you. We can be on a video call. Um, we give out heart rate monitors, um, which are digital that we can actually um, monitor remotely so for example if um, when we do our exercise classes online um, our instructors can if everyone's wearing a heart rate monitor they can actually monitor how the intensity of exercise people are doing um, so we've got lots of different bits and pieces in place to try and um, make sure this isn't one size fits all it really is kind of personalized to the individuals being referred in 
It's very impressive. I'm, I don't know whether the, the is, is it related to Manchester Mayor, but <laughs> it seems to be. A, <laughs> he, he is a big proponent. He's a big fan of us. Um, he's, um, no, Manchester seems to be winning on getting their funding into yeah, the community. Yeah. Um, the king yeah. of the north, Andy Burnham. He has been. I mean, he's, he's he knows a lot about the service, and um, he's he's come along to various events that we've run. So it's really good. I mean, he's he's really into his exercises, isn't he? So um, yeah, it's it's all it's Thank good you. to have people like Andy involved. Yeah. That's how you got your funding. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> And then, um, um, I was just going to ask one question about, I, we talked a little bit about um, barriers and don't want to revisit it too much, but I was just thinking as you discussed describing people who may go, um, often one of the concerns about, I guess, what might be seen as these elective services is that the uptake is lowest in the lowest socioeconomic group and highest in the, well, highest yeah. socioeconomic group. H have you seen that? Um, and have you looked for that data? We, we're looking at that data now, if I'm honest, actually. Um, one of the um, kind of feedback with our independent valuation was that we did, need, we did definitely need to do more about understanding the different groups who are coming through. I think we'd spent so much time at the beginning just trying to get it up and running, um, and we, we were getting high numbers of referrals, so we were kind of just rolling with it. But now what we're really doing is, is digging more into the data. Um, I mean, in Greater Manchester, it's, it's, a, it's a real mixed bag in terms of affluence. You know, we've got some really deprived communities, especially in the north um, um, part of the city. Um, and um, so, yeah, so it, again, I think we're lucky because we're working in those community environments that are within those places. So I think in some ways, um, that does help to overcome the barrier for those patients but I, I still think there's probably more we could be doing around those groups um, but again like I said before I really think it comes back to um, the message that comes um, from the clinical teams when patients are being seen when they're being diagnosed and it's it's amazing um, how much that kind of discussion really galvanizes people and it's it's really that teachable moment it what we have found is we um, we did try and get people to into the service earlier than um, earlier than when they'd had that final diagnosis, and that didn't work at all. It really didn't. When people had the symptoms and were going through a diagnostic pathway, but not a certainty around a diagnosis, they really weren't in a position to engage. So that's one yeah, of that's the big learnings. That's very yeah, interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Um, Brilliant, Zoe. And just uh, kind of to cap off, we've talked a lot about lung cancer, but you you look at uh, you looking at other cancer groups as well within Manchester, kind of coming along to your programs as well. Yeah. So so um, our cervicogastric and, can and colorectal cancer patients are already um, part of our service eligibility and have been since we started, along with lung. Um, but what we're looking now, uh, it, what we're calling it prehab for all. So it's how we um, take what we've done for those specific groups and we extend that to all cancer patients across Greater Manchester. Um, and so we're looking at various options around that digital options um, you know a real stratified approach to how you get people in um, some of the groups we're particularly focusing on again is where the evidence lies so some of the kind of major surgical groups um gyne um Danny Onk, you know um, hvb liver urology etc but but really what we recognize and there's a big push from our cancer alliance who's essentially the people who funded us in the beginning and who've been a big support of this 
is it's what how we offer prehab and rehab for all cancer patients but, but basically very much recognizing not everyone needs the same thing and um, going back to Tom's previous point about if you've got patients who are doing really well who are not asymptomatic who are you know the performance status is, is good it you know they're not going to need the same thing as somebody who's not in that position so it's really about how we tailor um, the service I think what we've recognized is that the assessment is the really key part so if we can get an assessment for everybody um, then we'd be able to really prescribe what individuals need and we'd be able to kind of probably stratify the resource as well. Fantastic. It's been really great hearing all about uh, your service. And just to kind of uh, sign us off at the end. So I, I think that probably my take home point is that I have to tell everyone that they, they should all really go to prehab. And that's really it's really important for them, whatever treatment they're having. But um, what would you say the other kind of take home messages for the people people listening along are? Um, I presume the kind of personalised treatment is really important. But um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, what I would say is that um, there's so many people nationally and internationally who are trying to make prehab happen now. And there's so many fantastic resources. So I'm very conscious that um, we're in a very privileged position where we are, that this is on offer for people. But there's there is loads of resources available online. You know, we've got our prehab for cancer website, which has got loads of videos. Um, but there's Macmillan have got lots of stuff like CRUK, etc. So I suppose the take home point I would want to say is that, um, you know, all um, MDTs should be talking to patients at diagnosis about prehabilitation and optimization. Um, there's, if they don't have a service to be able to refer someone in, they can signpost people to lots of resources that exist. Um, and it really does need to be personalized, like you say. So one of the things that's really key is about understanding individual patients. Um, I think there's that fear that, um, you know if you say go and do some exercise depending on what's going on for somebody they could cause themselves some harm but nine times out of ten actually you know it's going to make a massive impact on them if they do um find a way of engaging in prehab interventions um so yeah so those those would be some of the key points for me brilliant thank you so much for talking to us thank you for listening we hope you enjoyed this podcast for more information on BTOG, including educational events and how to join of course you can visit www btog.org. Just to remind you, we would love to hear your comments, thoughts, questions about things we discussed. And for the really interesting ones, we'll even discuss them in our next uh, podcast. You can contact us on info at btog.org or on Twitter at btog.org. Thank you very much.